Hello and welcome to In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore and I am with the Simps from Bumping This Tame Parlor album nonstop. With me today we have Brandon Hill. Yeah, uh, Brandon Hill from Central Sauce. Uh, Tame Impala has definitely been getting a lot of plays. Also been really big on that uh, Boldy James with the oh, yeah. Alchemist production on there. And that kind of got me back into Benny the Butcher, who I actually mm-hmm. cannot believe that I hadn't really listened to as much. Uh, He's great. But just went back to the plugs I met. And that has got to be like one of my favorite like short albums of all time almost now. That's great. That's great. Yeah, Benny's awesome. I love... Uh, he's probably my favorite out of Griselda for me. Yeah, uh, and we have Brian Capital. Yep. What up, what up? Also part of uh, Central Sauce writer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, so uh, on today's show, we're looking a bit at the uh, evolution and how backpack rap has aged. We have a piece from Rolling Stone on the uh, controversial Rage Against the Machine ticket prices and we'll end on a piece about DMX and his rise to fame and his legacy, really. So cool. Uh, So we'll start with my piece, which um, I got from DJ Booth. The writer goes by the name of Herschel Bandia and the title is How Backpack Rap Has Aged Over uh, two decades later. So this is kind of a piece looking back at the um, the backpack rap movement, which kind of uh, got its... is kind of known for taking shots at mainstream rap and um, preaching about the uh, negative reinforcement that that kind of rap brings, which is an interesting uh, thing to look at from the 90s considering that's an argument that perpetuates to this day so um, one thing I like that Herschel does on this piece is kind of um, integrates his personal experience of backpack rap with kind of like the facts and the uh, taking a step back and having a commentary on it so um, one thing he says is, uh, listening back, it feels like watching a hypothetical person on a pers- hypothetical person stage a political protest against all the injustice. Like it's a generic. Um, it's become this kind of generic thing to say. It's like, oh, mainstream rap is so bad and so detrimental, but without it, it's been watered down to the point where it barely has any substance at this point. Um, he goes into his personal experience again saying for every popular song I listened to aspirationally I listened to a less popular one that told me how stupid I was to aspire to the values implied by the former <laughs> <laughs> which is an amazing uh, amazing sentence this, this but, writer um, had bars that is for sure yeah, like, there's four yeah, just like, great bars. sentences in this piece yeah it's great um, great turns of phrases which are, which is great like um if you can put some of those in your writing, it just adds to the experience and kind of encapsulates what might be four or five lines just in a couple, a 
couple sentences, so it's great. Um, but that's that uh, extract kind of speaks to how backpack rap from the outside is can be viewed as so pretentious in a way, mm-hmm. but um, from the inside, if you're with it, then it's uh, it's a gold mine. It's uh, it's the absolute epitome of you know it's the uh, most pure message you've ever heard. So I want to uh, spread it to you guys. See what you guys uh, felt about this piece, uh, Brandon. What do you think about it, and how do you think about uh, how we ta- tackle the topic of the evolution of backpack rap? Yeah, so I mean, like I mentioned, my fa- my favorite thing from the piece is straight up just like how good <clears throat> the actual writing is in places. Um, another allusion he makes that I thought was fantastic was comparing backpack rap to you know your if you're rapping about rapping like you're rapping about how good you are at rapping uh he g- compares that to an author writing a motivational book whose largest achievement is having written the motivational book um, <laughs> right and you know i just like that i think that really resonated with me because you you hear a lot of you know critique on you know like like certain styles of rap um but you know a lot of those critiques are just you know, outside the genre, um, and it doesn't really lessen, like, either genre's, like, ability as an art form, um, just because it's being critiqued from someone who's, you know, approaching from a completely different genre. Uh, we heard right. that with the whole Billie Eilish situation recently, um, and I think in a way that the backpack rap, this whole piece and conversation can kind of even draws back to that a little bit. Uh, even the comparison to that the writer makes to uh, J. Cole's K.O.D. Uh, in 1985, like, before reading this, I wouldn't really have considered 1985 backpack rap, but, you know, the comparisons he makes is a really strong argument for 1985 being backpack rap. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually a good point, especially about the Billie Eilish. Um, just to clear up, Billie Eilish came out recently and talked about said some quite generic uh, things about rap, about how it's a whole lot of poses. Uh, To be fair to her, she seemed to be talking about personal experience and people that she knew, that she knew were faking. But uh, yeah, it does speak to a a larger phenomenon of people outside of hip-hop commenting on hip-hop. And uh, it's funny comparing it to backpack rap, because... In this case, it's people inside hip-hop commenting on other hip-hop. Yeah, and especially I feel like because this takes the lens of the 90s, the discrepancy between a mainstream hip-hop and underground backpack was a lot bigger than it is today. So um, someone like J. Cole commenting on a little pump, uh, it's less... It I think that made a bigger splash because the um, the genre lines are less defined nowadays. Uh, J. Cole could easily jump into a more mainstream uh, groove while uh, falling back into his quote-unquote backpack. Um, Which I think we even, I mean, have seen like last year out of J. Cole with, uh, you know, the features with 21 Savage and even some of the stuff on Revenge of the Dreamers. uh, Just some certain lyrics you wouldn't expect to come out of J. Cole. So, I mean, that again just talks to how much those genre lines blend so how effective is it to really like make commentary on something else you know 
Hmm. For the record, I do. I really like the song 1985. It was just nice to get like a different, you know, a new lens of looking at that song, like through backpack rap. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Brian, how did this piece hit you? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Like the author talks about um, basically how the movie Brown Sugar hasn't aged well, and that was like considered like a classic '90s movie. Um, they kind of talk about again just the the positioning of the the backpack rap and how you know that might be seen as kind of corny what the article actually made me think of was i don't know if you guys heard the song that um uh what's that white rapper uh so there's a song called death to mumble rap have you guys heard that oh my god yes i heard it unfortunately <laughs> it just sounds right. really bad just from the title yeah exactly so I, I that song is like the epitome of what this article is talking about right it's just like people who've completely lost touch and are just like rapping for the sake of rapping and 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 that's what old man yells at cloud yeah exactly Hmm. and that's a lot what uh backpack rap seems to be these days um i will say that like for the artists who kind of take it tongue-in-cheek like j cole or even like Joey Badass. I don't know how you guys feel about Joey Badass's last album, but um, there's literally a point where he goes lyrical, spiritual, miracle as like rhyme structure. And I thought that was like a tongue in cheek way of him sort of doing the backpack rap thing. So um, I, I, I think you can approach it as long as you're self aware enough. I think there's n- nothing wrong with backpack rap. I think it's when you take it too serious. Is that when people start? start clowning you yeah and I, I think you know that comes to when when you're i mean when you're self-identifying or i don't you know i don't know if anyone self-identifies as a backpack rapper but like if your niche is backpack rap and that's like your whole thing then like your whole thing is about commenting on someone else's thing um and i think that that is just so much further away from like the slightly tongue-in-cheek like you mentioned you know, like, it's always okay to, like, make some kind of commentary and, you know, pl- like, play off of, like, themes that are, you know, outside of your area and that's, like, good. But if you make that your whole thing, uh, yeah, you know, that just seems a little... Especially if you're trying to discredit something else, but then everything you're doing revolves around that something that you're trying to discredit. It just seems a little... uh ironic almost not only that but like you can also get like kind of lost in the weeds with it too like i feel like um cannabis right like cannabis very talented artist like the epitome of backpack rap and he put out this album like uh the infinity poet laureate right so he put out a song where you can mix it like six different ways like just combine it but like no one was anybody really checking for that song (laughs) (laughs) yeah um one thing i really like about this piece again it's how all-encompassing it is uh it's not necessarily a full-on critique of backpack rap i think there's an acknowledgement of the genuine concern of these rappers about the direction of hip-hop um especially when it comes to selling out Mm -hmm. and what it and um the idea of making the purpose of making art um the unfortunate thing is that a lot of artists uh tackled it in a quite corny way or at least looking back it definitely looks like a quite 
corny way, especially because they were saying 20 years ago, oh, you know, rap is dying. This is the last years of rap. We'll never get it as popular as it is now. But 20 years later, hip-hop has gone stronger and stronger each year, more popular, and has just um, grown. Um, I think Arshad said uh, there are more levels upon to engage with the genre now than backpackers could have ever anticipated. You know, the explosion of hip-hop, the way it's um, kind of branched off into all these different ways is something that was almost unfathomable unfathomable back in the 90s. Um, so what do you guys think about... What do you guys think about um, the angle of trying to quote-unquote save hip-hop from artists... from being overpopulated of artists setting out? Well, I think, I mean, the context of looking back is really, really uh, important to this article because <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. you know, by, by looking back, we can get some of the context about looking forward and, you know, that's where they bring they bring in uh, the concept of 1985 as a way of saying, like, okay, you know, like all these artists, like in the past, were saying, like, oh, like hip-hop's going to die, like this is no good and it's continued to only get larger and larger. So what does that say about you know, the fact that that conversation has continued now and, you know, people are saying, oh, like, there's no real rap out there, like, rap is dying. Well, you, you've been saying that for 20, 30 years and it's continuing to only get larger. So, I mean, is there any validity to you saying that now? Uh, you know, what has changed? Has anything changed? Or is it just continuing to get larger? And you're just continuing to get, like, a larger base of people who want to complain about it or who, you know, it has grown so diverse that there's so many areas outside of what you consider, you know, as a a hip hop purist or what you consider to be the best hip hop. There's so much more outside of that one area that you would feel like you have more to complain about or that it's being oversaturated, like you said, uh, with things that aren't what you expect or what you're wanting out of hip-hop, so you're making those statements. Um, Brian, the article concludes by kind of surmising that uh, the backpack rap movement was kind of inherently flawed and maybe kind of needless, because at the end of the day, if your job is rapper, you have to make money from it. Something that... And you have to maximise a profit, which is something that the backpack rappers criticised mainstream rappers for. Mm -hmm. So um, do you agree with that? Do you think that the backpack rap movement is, by its very nature, flawed? Well, it's hypocritical, right? But, I mean, it's sort of this idea of the... I mean, it's it's new capitalism against old capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's essentially what it is. Um, uh, You know, people who are part of the part of the counterculture are still selling you counterculture right so yeah (laughs) exactly that's basically what it is they're just you know replacing mcdonald's the you know most commodified thing with their version of the newer hipper edgier thing that they have right so uh, the article mentions that you know dead prez did a collab with supreme and you know that's I mean, so a couple of years ago, I wrote like a like an opinion piece on on my website about like artists who sell out, and I feel like there's nothing wrong with selling out, in the sense that like as long as that artist maintains some degree of integrity, they can quote unquote 
unsell out. So I think it's fine. You know, like we live in a reality where people still have to make money and that should be pretty much expected. And I think, I mean, with most of the commercialization and selling out, I mean, there's probably examples that, well, you know, I think for the most part, it's it's a more of a label issue than I really see individual artists. Like, you know, like the artists have pressure from their labels to, you know, to do certain things that's going to make certain amounts of money. So I don't know if it's always an artist that's like just selling out because they want to maximize their profits. Because um, for the most part, you know, artists do what, you know, either, like, like you said, like, it is a job, like, they have a boss who is putting certain pressures on them and certain expectations, um, and, you know, they have to adjust to those, so I see selling out as a concept, I blame more of the label than I would ever blame an artist, and, like, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of examples out there where that's not the case, where, like, yeah, mm-hmm. an artist is selling out just because they're trying to get the bag, um, or they don't care about their fans, but even like in the worst case scenario of that, like who, like who's like genuinely being hurt by that or damaged by that, you know? So I guess the argument that backpack rap is making is that what's being hurt or damaged by that is the culture of rap or just the quality of hip hop in general. Um, but you know, like we've said a few times, uh, the fact that the genre has grown larger and larger, uh, just don't really think that's the case. And I mean, you could make, you could say that rap as a whole has sold out, and I guess that would be the case that backpack rappers would try to make. Uh, but I just don't think that's true either. It's just grown so much larger, and there's so many different types of it. Well, the, the article brings up an interesting point, right? That uh, Rockus Records was founded by Rupert Murdoch's son. So, <laughs> how how uh, countercultural can you be? Like, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, I did like the description of like Rupert Murdoch as a real life cartoon villain. <laughs> yeah, that was like, great. Yeah, um, the overall like uh, playfulness of the language in this article was brilliant. I it's like it's a thought provoking thought provoking topic, but it's such a delight to read. It yeah, it's great. Um, the legacy of backpack rap is an interesting thing. Um, the way it's kind of split off itself into the faction of people who are unbelievably corny and <laughs> are like uh ride for this true quote unquote pure hip-hop where you have to rap three thousand syllables every half second and you know it's um that kind of tarnishes the idea of a backpack but a lot of those rappers um influence this wave of underground rappers uh who are so inventive so innovative um and kind of live in harmony with the uh mainstream side of hip-hop artists like um open mike eagle uh have just kind of um taken from that um quote-unquote true rap side of things and have taken from the uh more mainstream rap type of things and have completely branched off into something new that is like a really, really beautiful marriage between the two. So it's a complex legacy. And as genre lines become more and more uh, indiscernible, I think it's uh, becoming more and more of a moot point to uh, think about uh, hip hop, especially in terms of 
uh, specific genre genres. But um, overall, it was a really good, really thought-provoking piece. That, as I said, it was just a really nice read. Um, so shout out to Urshal Pantia. Uh, um, as a South Asian man, when I saw the opportunity to showcase another South Asian <laughs> writer, I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, so yeah, shout out to Urshal for that from DJ Booth. Let's move on to Brian's piece. Okay. Uh, so yeah, this is a Rolling Stone article by John Listing, and it's about the rage against the machine's ticket prices. Uh, essentially, ticket uh, prices. They announced a rage against the machine. They announced a tour, and uh, the ticket prices. The speculative ticket prices were like skyrocket high, and uh, scalpers were trying to you know cut in on the action and then a lot of the rage ended up getting a, a bit of criticism at first you know people kind of saying oh they sold out and it, it turns out that rage actually had a plan to uh, dissuade uh, ticket scalpers uh, because they knew that was going to happen um and the article sort of talks about like the technical details of how tom morello and the rest of rage uh, basically came up with this plan they devised this plan to buy charity seats for uh, essentially a, a bigger ticket price to bring down the other tickets um, and they selected it at random so again it, it just kind of threw a wrench in the the scalpers plans and they, they also you know were encouraging fran- uh, fans rather than to buy tickets through Ticketmaster or other third parties to buy directly from them and uh, that's that's pretty much like the, the crux of the article. Yeah, I think um, it. I mean, it. I get like where people are coming from, where they were put off by the concept. Like, I'm mean, obviously like Rage Against the Machine. Like their whole thing, you know, has been raging against the machine. So then, <laughs> seeing like you know, 150 dollar ticket prices and all that, like. Has got to be like off-putting at first, and you think you know they're it's a reunion tour too, so they're just coming back. So it seems like off the top like a cash grab, um, and I think even we're just so accustomed to dealing with things like this in a not very optimistic way uh, because we're so used to it coming from being a cash grab. Like that's most often the case. So e- like even when they come out and say like oh no like it's uh, like a way to combat scalpers like you're not really convinced until you get into an article like this and you have someone who breaks down the numbers and you know and that's a, it's a great example of what rolling stone does best as journalists um you know they go and they find these intersections between music and politics and economics and they bring you that information that would normally be very difficult to just come by yourself and they bring it to you very accurately uh and that what this article did, I think, is puts puts that information out there that can dissuade people. Like, oh, okay, like they, like I can trust Rage Against the Machine is doing, you know, what they think is right, or they, you know, they calculated this and they thought this through. This isn't the pessimistic crash cash grab that I'm used to and that I'm accustomed to. Um, so, in that sense, it was a very great read for that. 
Yeah, and um, I think the way uh, John wrote this article is so clever. Because, as you say, it's very technical, uh, breaks down the numbers very well, throws a lot of facts out there. But at the start of the article, he poses a question. Like, near the start, he says, have rage become the machine? Rage And he poses that question. And he doesn't necessarily answer it directly, but he poses that, then throws out the facts and says, reader, make up your mind, you know? And I think that's a a really good, um, it's a testament to him. And I think that's a really clever way to uh, structure an article like this, because it's very easy to put your personal opinion on it. It's very easy to go like, oh, wait, 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 guys, it's not as bad as you think. Or guys, this is still kind of messed up. Um, But he posed the question, put that seed in your mind. It's like, like, uh, by the end of this article, I'm going to be persuaded one way or the other. And he he kind of lets you make up your own mind. Um, And I like how this topic kind of feeds into what we did before, just on the uh, idea of selling out. Selling out. Um, Yeah. And it's an interesting one, especially with someone like Rage, um, uh, people like Rage, because of their uh, overall message and ideals, and especially when run, someone like Run the Jewels is opening for them, who have similar ideals, man, it's uh, that show actually is gonna have to be so incredible. Like I know that that pair sounds like a match made in heaven. I know I, know. I mentioned you that before the pack... podcast recording, but <laughs> you can have to pack so much water, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... So yeah, I think that's an interesting angle. Um, I think uh, the fact that fans and artists are starting to have to be a bit more um, innovative to beat the uh, scalpers, because the scalpers are absolutely relentless. Brutal in every chance they get the opportunity to, and it's not even just ticket sales. Right, and it's like... They somehow are the fastest internet connections in the universe, and they get the tickets before any human being could. And it's a uh... do. Do we know the average uh, price of a concert ticket? Well, in general, yeah. they do mention in the article that big arena uh, ticket pricing tickets. for right. their concert for their tour is pretty standard at around one hundred twenty-five dollar baseline price. That that is pretty standard. Like that. Sounds just still insanely expensive, um, but most of the shows I go to are, you know, college town shows or hmm. small to medium sized venue shows, and I pay twenty five to sixty a ticket. So you know, one hundred twenty five still sounds insane. Um, but for a band like Rage Against the Machine, and you know, these aren't medium sized venues; like these are arena level tours. Um, I guess that's a standard ticket price. Um, and they even say, you know, a big part of it is what they're selling over that is going to charity anyway. So they're not pocketing any extra money than the standard ticket price for selling out that area. You know, and it's not like you expect Rage Against the Machine to, like, undercut their own prices where, you know, there there's expenses associated with those big arenas that justify the higher price for those tickets. Uh, so, you know, they can't really undercut their self on that. So let me ask this question. Do they need to do an arena tour? Could they not just well, do smaller venues venues, and 
make cheaper t- tickets. I, um, in smaller venues, you can probably hit more places and be accessible to more fans. But I think Rage is, like, they're too big of an act to do, like, bar show. Like, what would be under arena but bigger than a bar? Like, maybe theaters or something? There are mid-sized venues. Yeah, um, I mean, I would think my, I think, like, I don't know if you guys have ever been there, uh, probably not, but, like, the pageant in St. Louis or, like, Oregon Ballroom in Chicago are all what I would consider to be a medium-sized venue because it's not, like, a real personal setting with the artist, um, but it's also not, like, arena seating. Like, most of the area of the venue is still going to be, like, standing. Uh, so I would kind of consider that to be medium-sized. Yeah, or if you're one of the 2.5 people placed in Birmingham... Arena Birmingham is kind of that kind of uh, mid-level kind of um, venue. I think J. Cole played there a few times. And I think that ticket was like 50 quid, 50 pounds. So... Do you guys what? find that mid-sized concert venues are shutting down like in your city? Because I, I find that. Uh, not necessarily, actually. Okay. I see them thriving more than anything. I think... And this might be a stretch, but I think maybe I've seen the size of acts, I think, Mm -hmm. aren't, like, I think that the larger, more popular acts are gravitating away from the medium-sized venues. Um, That might also just be because, like, over the years, like, my favorite acts, you know, have gotten larger and bigger. Um, So it may just Mm kind of be that effect that the acts that I pay more attention to are gravitating from that. And then the younger people are in... You know their favorite acts are hitting those mid-size arenas, um, so it, you know it could it could be due to that effect. But then also I think like paying 125 bucks to go see and just put it in terms of like an artist I really like, so like J Cole, like paying 125 bucks to go see J Cole at an arena, like also just doesn't seem that appealing to me because you know I don't want to be in my seat like watching a concert from like really far away. Like that just doesn't seem like a valuable or as valuable of a concert experience to me uh, as opposed to, you know, 60 bucks for a medium venue or 25 for, you know, like the couple hundred people in a bar type setting. Uh, But, you know, I guess that that also just comes with the fact of like the artists that you follow for so long getting bigger. Um, You know, that is the natural next step. And where your your base question was, you know, should Rage Against the Machine play smaller venues um, and, you know, do more of those venues. But also, you know, as as they get older and, you know, they've been touring for so long and they've done so many tours, like, mm. the hustle and grind of hitting, like, a small venue every single night for, like, smaller shows, lower ticket prices, like, even if they could reach, you know, somewhere around the same end result, uh, you know, I think the amount of work and hours and effort... And, you know, just stress and overall, you know, wear is a lot higher. And, you know, I do think, like we were talking about before, like artist is, you know, it is a job. Um, You know, you wouldn't expect anyone else who's been in their industry for 20, 30 years to Hmm. start sacrificing some of the, you know, the benefits that come with having worked their industry for so long just to you know, make things cheaper or easier on the consumer. You know, you don't, you wouldn't expect that in every single case. And I think it's nice when you do see that, but I, you know, I don't think we should expect it, but we should, you know, definitely like when that does happen, like, oh yeah, like 
Like, that's awesome. And then also, I mean, even if they did a smaller arena or, like, a smaller setting, you know, what's to stop scalpers from quickly getting a hold of those $60 tickets and then reselling them for $200? So then, you know, if that really then it's still not affordable to the people who can't afford the arena seating to begin with. I think mid-size would be a a good go-between. I just I think those opportunities are less and less. At least that's what I'm uh personally finding. I agree that I think it's fair to for them to as legacy acts kind of charge a, a bit more. Um, I also think part of it is that their fan base is also getting a bit older, so that's why they have, like, arenas, right? Because I don't think as many people are going out to bars or mid-sized uh, places to, to perform. Yeah, yeah, it might it might be more of a crowd that is, you know, more comfortable watching a show, you know, rather than, like, from the distance, rather than, like, being in the pit and, like, you know, like, that kind of stuff, so... I can I can definitely see that. And again, like we said, like with Rage Against the Machine and their whole concept, uh, you know, I think they have the sort of fans and audience that are going to be very skeptical of cash grab type scenarios. So, you know, of course, like they're they're more likely to be very vocal about this sort of situation, um, which is, again, why this article, I think, was needed and just very well done by uh, John Blisting. Shout out to him again. I mean, obviously, there was an issue. Um, he investigated the issue. He broke it down. Didn't tell you the answer, but gives you the information that you need to kind of find that answer for yourself. And at the end, you know, it is still your opinion. Um, but at least now, you know, you can make that opinion based on as much information as can be accessed on the topic. Right, it's broken down in a very logical way for people to make an informed opinion. I agree, I could not summarise the piece better than that. Um, I just find the thought of sitting down while watching Run the Jewels absolutely hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I mean... (laughs) I I don't think... It's humanly possible. (laughs) Yeah, but that's again, like, that's just... Like I don't want to see my favorite artists at the at giant arenas, mm. but I mean I don't know. That I guess that's a case by case basis. Could be different for every person. Yeah. Have you guys been to arena shows? Like what? What are some acts that you might have seen at an arena? Um. I mean, the largest shows I've been to are like Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo shows. So I yeah. mean, arena size like numbers, mm-hmm. but a totally different environment. I think. You know, because then you've got tens of thousands of people in an open field as opposed to tens of thousands of people in, you know, tiered arena seating. Uh, So I think, you know, totally different environment, but I would take the festival show over the arena show probably any day. Like for me, uh, one of the last concerts I've been to was the Smashing Pumpkins reunion. And uh, that was an arena show that they did with Noel Gallagher and the Flying Birds. And that was really well done. Like the the, the, Sma- the Smashing Pumpkins, they had a very elaborate set design. And yeah. I think that that sort of thing helps. Yeah. 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 And that, so yeah, if you're going to use the big arena, um, you know, I would expect your show to be a lot more of a spectacle, you know, doing a lot more with the actual performance side. Um which, again, you know, I'm sure that, that some of that cost 
is associated with the higher cost of arena tickets. Um, mm. But yeah, I guess you know I just myself have not been to like an incredible arena show. I'm sure I'm sure it'll happen eventually. Like I can imagine a couple years from now, you know, maybe like an Earth Gang JID like arena show oh, with like just tons of money put into like production value uh, would be crazy. When I saw I saw Smino on tour in like a small uh, small venue setting, and they brought so much production value for a small venue setting too. Um, And he was with Earth Gang. So, you know, I can see, like, that's definitely got to be some of the value of the arena shows. Um, That's another reason why everybody's whack for booing Drake off stage at Camp Flogno. (laughs) Like, like, yo, those tickets, those tickets are like 200 bucks to see Drake in an arena. And you saw him for like, you know, like 20 bucks a show for your festival ticket price. Like. And you're just mad it's not Frank Ocean. Like, that was whack. That's true. That's true. It's bad. But it was funny. So it's okay. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of like arena artists, artists I'd like to see in an arena, Anderson Pack could be the one. Like, if I had the opportunity to see Anderson Pack in the big arena, I'd do it. Because um, I saw him in Munich last year at Tony Hall, Munich, if you know what that is. It's not a big venue at all. But the amount of stuff like he did with that small stage was unbelievable and, and yeah I'll, it was is is the best concert i've ever been to yeah, i would absolutely um, love to see it yeah he, he was incredible and uh i'm going to see mike and medani on thursday if you're familiar with them so uh that's going to be a completely different show it costs like 11 quid and it's in some real small venue so i'm excited to see how that plays out in contrast to the anderson back one which is my last concert but uh yeah so, um, shout out to John Blistein for that piece. It was, um, yeah, as the guy said, very technical, but allowed you to make up your mind without forcing you in any particular direction. So, shout out to John, shout out to Rolling Stone. Definitely. So, yeah. So the next piece, Brandon brought it. So right. I'm going to talk about it. So my piece, um, I wanted to make an effort this time to, because I feel like I almost like bring a Rolling Stone piece almost every single time. Um, and we do a lot of DJ booth, Pitchfork, you know, yeah. a lot of these uh, outlets that, you know, we are already familiar with, we already know. That's why we're reading them. Uh, we know there are good writers that we reliably go to. So I wanted to make an effort this time to kind of search out something, you know, that was a bit smaller, uh, you know, not a well-known writer, and just, you know, see what kind of content is being put out by, you know, people who, you know, aren't doing it as a full-time job and everything, um, mm. you know, in hopes of, like, you know, bringing them some attention, just getting them a little bit of a platform. So I found this piece from a website called HypeOffLife.com, um, Years of the Dog, DMX's Influence on the Culture by a writer who goes by the name Penthouse Sean. So what I really, like, the piece basically just covers a brief timeline of DMX's career, and it gives some context on how, you know, each segment or stage of his career was interacting with the overall culture at the time that that was going on, um, which I found, like, just really good information and really relatable uh, because of the retrospective tone that the artist takes. So, like, I'm a bit younger, um, 
especially, you know, for hip-hop, like, I didn't grow up with, like, you know, the original hip-hop artists and us alongside the culture, so, you know, people like DMX, so, like, never being, like, actively a part of DMX's, like, influence on the culture, um, I, I think Sean expresses similar sentiments in the piece, like, how he can't believe, you know, growing up, he somehow missed the song, How's It Going Down, um, and then, you know, when you hear that song for the first time, you're like, man, like, like, where has this been all my life? Like, obviously, like, this validates, like, what everybody's been saying about DMX that I've heard. Um, and I, I felt a very similar way when I first heard the song Rewind by Nas. Um, that was a really example of one of those. Like, you know, I didn't grow up with Nas, like, alongside Nas. I had just always knew, like, oh, yeah, like, Nas is one of the best rappers there's ever been. Like, that's just a fact. Like, you know, if you've been around hip-hop, you, you you know talk to people who are really informed on hip hop that's just kind of a given um so when i heard rewind by nas that was one of those moments where i was really like okay like i get it now like so i think you know a lot of this article tone comes from the same way uh where it's coming from someone who grew up with you know with dmx kind of in the background um like he said is for the first hip hop album he ever recognized uh you know was dmx's and, you know, just some of that music just always being, like, there, but not really present in the entire culture of it. So, you know, as part of the article, he's going back through, like, DMX's back catalog, um, breaking down big moments that have happened in his culture. Like, you know, like anyone does when you, like, really get into an artist and then want to explore that whole back catalog. Uh, but he goes beyond that by explaining out, like, those cultural moments. And while I think it can never really replace having actually gone through those moments as they were happening, I think as journalists and fans, um, it can be really vital to have pieces like this that help you, you know, go back into that headset and kind of understand and explore it. And, like, that understanding is just really important because, you know, the music and culture is kind of like a living thing. Um, and it builds on itself as it grows. So to understand like where it's at now and you know where it's going to be in the future, you kind of have to understand where it's coming from. Uh, and I just think that's what Sean has done really well with this article is providing you know one window for those of us you know who didn't grow up with it or who might not have been familiar with this specific artist like, to go back in there and kind of get a feel for, you know, what it was like in those moments as they were happening. So what'd you guys, what'd you guys think? Oh, well, I want to agree on the sentiment of like the best trait of this article is definitely the, um, the personal angle and kind of like you get this journey of DMX his and his career and Sean's, um, relationship with each kind of <clears throat> milestone uh, as you go along, so I think that was a really cool way of um, structuring an article, and his uh, writing style was so um, it was relaxed in a way that uh, he was writing very well effortlessly. Effortlessly, like um, he seemed to pack a lot of sentiment into each paragraph, into each line, and it gave the article a very uh, homely feel. And it's not a long article. He didn't need, um, you know, pages and pages to express what he needed to express. He uh, kind of expressed his feelings 
succinctly and I think that's a really um a really uh powerful tool in writing. Um so yeah, I think that was that's probably my favorite thing about this piece. Uh how do you think about it, Brian? Yeah, I thought it was cool. Like I thought it was a cool little article just uh again like a retrospective on DMX. I mean, I'm somebody who was young and was into DMX and I remember like following like the movies he was in and that kind of thing, which is a bit odd but also true. Um so it I would say, yeah, more so like DMX because that was sort of like the later 90s than like somebody like Nas who I had to go back and listen to like his albums. Um, DMX uh, sort of, he was coming out like, you know, during my time of like coming of age, that type of thing. So um, like I remember DMX being featured prominently like on certain soundtracks. I like, I remember... Um, I remember seeing Belly, um, and the art, like the writer talks about that and, and the influence that like Belly had, and it has had a lot of influence on, on the culture itself, just that movie alone. Right. Um, but DMX also something I think the, the article could have written about was like DMX, the actor, um, because I think that's, um, it's interesting because there were not that many people doing it at that time. And I think DMX was one of the best to do it other than maybe like Tupac um yeah sorry I'm, I'm sort of going on a tangent here <laughs> so good I think the con like the concept of hip-hop artists like in film is also just like like as an aside just like a whole interesting like thing to get into and it, it when this was making me think about you know what prominent rappers were really like involved in film um and you know who were some of the first like Tupac obviously came to mind um DMX but you know like like uh like Brian mentioned like at that time like who who else was really doing that and you know doing it well um and I I think it might be a little bit more common or a little bit more popular now uh and that just is an example that's one of the impacts that DMX like possibly had on the culture is one of the earlier you know involved in that uh shout out to asap rocky's acting on dope by the way that was oh great, yeah yeah he actually did a really really good job on that it was a great movie yeah um i find it kind of funny commenting on dmx especially after reading this article where near the start he points out that his first album was released in 1998 which is the year i was born so i kind of feel like uh my right to comment is maybe lesser. Um, but uh, having, you know, not really grown up with a, with a hip-hop culture in general and having to go back, um, the energy surrounding DMX has always been something completely different and something that is almost impossible to be replicated. Like, the... Um, the tone of his music, especially back then, just having an album called It's Dark and Head is Hot and then like being going into like Hollywood as an actor is a a strange um you know a strange parallel to have. But um I wanted to talk about something in general about artists like DMX, who as uh, Sean mentions at the start of the article, you know, 
there's this guy who is the definition of the word raw in an era of shiny suits. And um, it got me thinking about artists who break the mould completely from what's popular but still manage to shoot right to the top like DMX did. Like, um, his, his breakout album, it was unlike anything that was going on in the mainstream, but it's still... Um, it still uh, skyrockets them to this this level of fame. So, um, but with so many artists out there who are breaking the mold, who don't make it, I wanted to to kind of discuss like what makes an artist stand out like that, and what makes it so they are the one to uh, get the fame and success. I think. I mean, I think there's. There's so many variables involved that it's almost impossible yeah. to pin down or predict. Um, you know, I can th- I can think of I- examples where, you know, I personally feel an artist like has that kind of weight. You know, but those you know those are all based on specific things like within my taste and like expectations. But to the point where you know an artist like DMX who doesn't just gravitate so well with like a niche portion that like really love it but mm-hmm. goes beyond that to like you said you know break out the mold and really just gravitate to everyone uh is just so unpredictable and i think yeah like because it's it's got to be so much more than the music right you know like because there are there are plenty of artists who make incredibly good music but they don't they don't get that moment you know they don't encapsulate that whole moment like what dmx does Hmm. that's a good point uh brian any thoughts on that yeah i mean i i agree i think dmx definitely represented a moment in time for hip-hop um i think in a way he's sort of underrated because of you know his sort of like personal failings and i think a lot of people might be quick to forget the legacy of DMX. Um, and I mean, he, he's like one of the only artists to release like two albums the same year and both of them go like platinum, if not like double platinum, right? Num- yeah. yeah. Um, They're both number one albums too in the same year. I think it was, he might've been like the first hip hop artist to do that. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And uh, for another, for listeners, for another good brush up on DMX, actually our, fellow Fifth Element Podcast Network, uh, Digging in the Digits with Ben and Charlie. They have a whole episode on DMX. And, I mean, both those guys are, uh, like, a lot more well-versed on the specifics of DMX than at least what I know my, I myself am. Um, but, you know, in in the context of the moment, um, you know, that's that's something anyone can talk about as, you know, as we go forward and how, like, the culture grows from that. And that's just, again, what I think this article specifically did such a good job of, you know, diving into is not, you know, it's not the most detailed thing on DMX ever written, but it does an extremely good job of, you know, lending a window to that moment as DMX grew up with. Because like what Ryan was saying about, you know, what does it take for an artist to be that moment like DMX is? To, you know, to approach that question, or to understand that, or, you know, to recognize that in the future you have to have a window to looking at those moments in the past. 
uh, like what this does with a great job with DMX. That uh, the video they embed from his Woodstock performance also, you know, in the context of, yeah. you know, we were talking about arena rock versus, you know, like small venues, medium venues, like festival shows and everything. Like, what I mean, what is going on in that like Woodstock performance? Like, that's not you. Know, you wouldn't see that like in an arena thing. You know, that in itself is a moment, and you know, even has he describes it like that. Like having not been at that performance, like yeah, you can watch the YouTube video and you can be like, damn, that's crazy. But to have someone also like break down the cultural significance of that show, you know, like it, like it's where it's not, it's not just a show. It's like an isolated incident where you can see the kind of moment that DMX encapsulates. And then you can kind of understand like through that and like through his explanation, how that that could possibly expand to, you know, just cover his whole arc and like his whole career. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. Um, so yeah, definitely shout out to Penthouse Sean. Um, what was the name of the um, platform again? Hype Off Life. Hype Off Life. So Penthouse Sean of Hype Off Life. Hype Off Life. Um, yeah, I definitely think we should start showcasing more of these smaller writers. Um, as much as the Pitchforks and the DJ booths and the Rolling Stones produce great, great, great content, it's... Uh, it would be a disservice to make a podcast about music journalism and not really look, go into the depths and um, seek out these writers who uh, and give a platform to these writers um, who aren't a part of those big uh, those uh, big uh, platforms. So yeah, um, I think that does it for this episode of In Search of Source. I want to give big thanks to Brandon. Yeah, uh, Brandon Hill, Central Sauce, writer, editor, production for Discovery. Uh, thanks for listening. Yep, I'm Brian Capital. Okay, uh, I've been Ryan Gore. Uh, please, please, it goes a long way if you can do so uh, to leave a review on iTunes or an Apple podcast as it is now. Uh, that will go a long way to help us um, gain a bigger platform. And yeah. I think this podcast could do some really cool things for journalism and um, kind of bring a mentality to journalism where writers are more inclined to write these in-depth, thought-provoking pieces rather than fall on the uh, all-reliable clickbait. So yeah, uh, shout-out to a guy called Squid, who is the only person to have left a review so far. <laughs> Hopefully he can, he can uh, increase those numbers soon. So yeah, this is Ryan Gore signing off. See you next time. This episode of In Search of Source features Brian Capital, Brandon Hill, and Ryan Gore of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Film Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Basti, thanks to Chill Crackers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth M Podcast Network production. Links to Basti, Chill Records, Central Source, The Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the description below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>